I've long been a fangirl of serial entrepreneur, designer, and visionary Christiane Lemieux. Christiane was a digital pioneer whose company, Dwell Studio, founded in 2000, was one of the first in the online home goods space before eventually being acquired by Wayfair in 2013. This interview you're about to hear with her from the vault was one that I did right before The Big Secret was announced. Since then, Lemieux has gone on to launch On the Inside, a home furnishings brand that brings the high-end experience of customizing fabrics to furniture through partnerships with companies like Scala Madre and Old World Weavers, and most recently, a licensed collection of furnishing with anthropology, Lemieux Essie. She's also written two more books, including her first business book, Frictionless, which I've just loaded onto my Kindle. Frictionless is about starting companies that will thrive in the world of frictionless commerce as a result of new technologies, new mindset, and the demands of millennial consumers. As someone who works with women who have big creative ideas and paradigm-shifting visions, it never gets old spending time with them to get a sense of how they think. What I've always loved about Christiane as a fan in the stands, is that watching her trajectory is like watching a woman follow her creativity. Someone who is always going after the next incredible experience and making her own rules along the way. I call this a lesson on trusting your gut. It's been said that you challenge tradition in a quintessentially American way and that you're an American design visionary and let, yet you grew up in Canada. So does I that feel ironic to you? I, I, I mean, I, you know, I think I, I think that, you know, being Canadian, you're sort of equal parts European and equal parts American, if that makes any sense. So I feel like from a design perspective, you draw from both from both places, and so it's it's pretty easy to to you know it's pretty easy to design for any market. So I would call myself a North American design person. How did you end up in New York? I ended up in New York because I came to school. So I, I went to a university in Canada, and I got an undergraduate degree in art history. And then I came – I always wanted to do design, so I came to New York to go to Parsons School of Design. And I sort of fell in love with the city and have, have never left. Cool. And you started uh, your career as a fabric assistant for uh, Ms. Rahi, is that right? Ms. Rahi, Yes. So when I graduated yeah. from Parsons, I took I took two very specific jobs because one was with Isaac Mizrahi at the very high end, kind of the luxury uh, end of the marketplace, doing fabric design and development for a fashion company, and he was actually owned by Chanel at the time. So it was re- you know so I got to work with the most beautiful mills in the world. And then the second job I took was at The Gap, and that's when Mickey Drexler was there, and I really wanted to see how a large company functioned in the same kind of capacity, the same design world. And so, you know, two very sort of binary experiences, but really they both really taught me a lot. Yeah, and you said you took them specifically. So obviously you always had a vision that you would have your own company. Is that right? I did, yes. Yeah, but I wanted to, you know, as I, as I, as I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, I really wanted to get as much um, relevant experience as possible before starting my own company to, you know, to mitigate mistakes to the, to the extent that I can you know, or could. And how did you know it was the time to go out on your own? 
Well, then the third, the third uh, job I took was for a company called Portico, which you know, it was a happenstance. I had a friend whose husband was in private equity and bought this home furnishings company and sort of didn't know what to do from a product development standpoint. So he asked me to come on board, principally to do surface design for, their, for, for textiles, which is one of the big categories that they sold. So I did that and then you know, slowly got involved in everything from packaging to furniture design to overseas sourcing to everything. And so I really got kind of a, uh, all of the tools I needed to start my own business. And it ended up being in home furnishings instead of fashion because when I did this, I actually fell in love with the industry. And then I tried a couple of my designs on the floor and they resonated with consumers. And then I figured that was the time to make the leap. Very cool. I'm going off script here a little bit. So <laughs> did you feel, did you start with um, a big investment? Did you have partners? Did you do it on your own? I did, it, part- all on, yeah. I did it all on my own. So I left there, I left that business with about $15,000 in the bank. But what I did was because, you know, Portico was really a visionary brand at the time and Mm -hmm. all of the sort of larger companies looked to Portico for trend and product inspiration, all of those kinds of things. So I used that as a calling card and went to some of the larger companies like Crate and Barrel, like Room and Board, and sort of pitched my private label services because at that point, you know, not only could I design things, but I could also get, I could also have them manufactured because, you know, I had developed this whole network of sourcing both in Europe and in Asia. And so I was very lucky that these, that all these companies took a chance and I did private label design and manufacturing for them very early on. And so that sort of became the venture capital arm of the business, if that makes Uh, sense. Just genius. It's genius. (laughs) When you launched your line of furnishings in 2000, you know, Dwell Studio was a pioneer in the online interior design space. Mm-hmm. And now if you look at how it's blown up, so why did you start online? And do you think that staking your claim there is really what helped uh, your brand gain fame so quickly among, I'd say, consumers? Because obviously you were doing the private label stuff from the, from the commercial standpoint. Well, we, we got online very early on uh, just because, you know, I obviously I think that online is the, the future of commerce in every single respect. Um, I think we're just starting to, to sort of touch touch on on the sort of iceberg of that. I think I think people are going to really transition how they do business and what retail um, brick and mortar means. But I, you know, I've I've always been fascinated with the sort of you know a, a 2.0 economy of sales, and I, I we really wanted to be involved in that very early on. The world of online sales changes daily. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where you have to be, you have to be willing to be super nimble because, you know, first, when I first started the business, it was some online, but then we still had to go the traditional trade show route. So, you know, every year we'd do the trade show schedule, show our product, get orders from our large wholesale customers, um, and then also fulfill direct to consumer online. And, you know, the great thing is that people who are starting out businesses today don't necessarily have to do those types of things. I think, you know, for young entrepreneurs, there's just so much opportunity that I didn't necessarily have. And that was even, you know, five, six years ago. So the whole world of sort of getting your brand out in front of people, channels of distribution, getting in front of eyeballs has really opened up. So I think it's a great time to be uh, product in product development and entrepreneur, you know, ship. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, for, from the original vision of your company then to now, has it? I mean, obviously, you know, you have to evolve, but has it transformed a lot? Did you always expect you'd have a company this size? Were you going for that, or, or did you? How, you know, in terms of plan and strategic, your job uh, choosing was very strategic. 
what about the growth of your business? Um, well, my, the job choosing was really strategic, and then after that, it's just been, you know, the wild, wild west. I, I, I don't have a business <laughs> background, so I just sort of, you know, I've just sort of done, I've just followed my gut and, and, mm-hmm. and, and done, you know, ch- ch- done, each move has been sort of carefully considered, but I certainly don't have a, you know, overarching business plan. And I, you know, to me, the sky is the limit. I just, it's, it's about, for me, it's about the experience. It's about the journey. It's about doing the next interesting thing. And that's sort of how I've developed this thing. It's kind of grown pretty organically. I want to talk about a little bit about brand DNA. And okay. so for me, the Dwell Studio brand is really synonymous with words like luxe and modern. Is there a certain emotional experience that you want customers to have with your brand, or do you determine, determine that on a product-by-product basis? No, I think there's an overarching emotional experience we want people to have with our brand, and I think it's really about, per, about the personal. And that's even why I wrote Undecorate. I think the most beautiful interiors, the most beautiful design, the best kind of lifestyles are ones that are really personal to people. So we don't prescribe, you know, you have to buy page 25 of the catalog in order to, 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 to have this dual studio lifestyle. To me, it's more about, you know, what do you love and keeping the things you love and hopefully mixing in some of the pieces we have. And really, you know, it's self-expression through design. There are no rules. There are no, you know, steadfast guardrails. It's really creating an environment that you feel comfortable in, that you think is beautiful, that's reflective of your personality. So it's kind of anything goes, but I, I think we take that philosophy and we design our, our, our furniture and textiles and accessories as pieces so each of them is kind of beautiful in its own way and you can mix it in or you can buy a whole bunch of them have a really curated interior but the thing is it's never going to look like somebody else's because it's not meant to sort of like be a suite of furniture the way people think of it in a traditional way Mm -hmm. this is just a funny thing but you said in an interview that you uh if you put a bird on it it will sell is that right (laughs) Well, you know what? We've beyond we've gone beyond bird for us. We if you put a cre- <laughs> if we put a creature on it, it will oh. sell. So first for us, the bird, the, the snake was the new bird, and now the antelope is a new snake and bird. So I don't know. For some reason, we're the go-to place for any kind of animal-inspired interior decorating. <laughs> it's hilarious. I wonder what yeah. that's about. Um, I think so it's. I think it's part of the whole our whole eclectic philosophy that you right. can have all of these different things and they can they can all be meaningful. Yeah, and I'm thinking I'm wondering if it's more vegetarians buying the animals on the fabric, maybe not <laughs> as opposed them, to <laughs> possibly. <laughs> no, okay. So you've been masterful at creating partnerships with powerful, iconic brands like um, Robert Allen and Target. What qualities do you think are most important to making business relationships? with those kinds of massive entities, you know, really harmonious and profitable? Well, I think, I think it, the only reason we have relationships with those companies is because we let our work sort of do the, do the talking for us. So, you know, we're not out there hustling um, and trying to get product in front of people. What we're really doing is, is designing and trying to design to the best of our abilities. And I think, you know, if you, if you create really great product um, and it speaks for itself, then those types of doors will open up. Okay, so you, you know, what about the designer who wants to really break in, though? Do you think, like, is there anything I say, you would suggest? No, do some great work and get it in front of them because if they don't see it, they're not going to know you're there. So take right. the, do, put your best foot forward, 
you know, put together the, the greatest portfolio you can think of and get it, send it to them. Send it to, I mean, all of these large companies are looking for new talent all the time. Uh, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 talent is the ultimate currency. So if you, you know, you feel like you've got it, then show it. Do you think press helps too? Getting media and things like that has that helped? I, I do, I do, I do. But, but you know what? In in this day and age, there there's so many ways that you can you can you know you can get that yourself. You know, social media. I mean, referrals, people talking about you. I think the first, the most important thing is just is just to get your product out there. I think you know it, it, you don't want to hard sell everything, but I think if if you get your product out there and people start to see it. And then you'll gain traction, and then yeah, then the press will come, and all of those things. But the, the most important thing is is just putting yourself out there. Speaking of social media, how do you use it, and do you think it's important uh, for business, the evolution of your brand, and like to creating a unique customer experience? I don't know that social media is the be all and the end all in terms of sales, and I certainly would never use it that way. Like I find you know companies that try and browbeat you via social media to buy their products. I'm not sure it's necessarily you know to my mind the best strategy. I really like social media um, to a communicate with our consumer so that they know that we're here and listening. I like it to communicate that like our authentic brand story. So there really is a real person behind this brand. It's not something that you know some large billion dollar corporation made up and then tried to back into a story. You know, there's yeah. a lot of that now. Everyone's about storytelling, but this is an authentic brand, and so I think they, you know, it's nice for them to know that there's a person behind it who's living the lifestyle that they're that they are communicating to you. So to me, it's all about authenticity, brand story, and you know, communicating a lifestyle. And you know what? If you want to buy the products, great. And if you just want to participate in the lifestyle, great. And if you, you know, just want to look at pretty pictures, great too. Yeah, I love it. So it is that storytelling aspect. And, and just this brings up, you are the face of your company, you know, especially with the lifestyle brand. So what do you think is the best thing and the hardest thing about being visible? I was reticent for a long time about being the face of the brand, but then I realized, you know, everyone's doing it. Everyone's their own brand. Everyone's, you know, all of my peers are doing it. So I realized that it's a, it's a requisite for business in any way, shape, or form, whether it's a tiny business or a massive business. I think people are looking for authenticity and they're looking for a, a real person, a real voice behind the brand. So they don't just feel like they're being serviced some sort of, you know, large corporate uh, sort of agenda. And so I, I've kind of done it gingerly, but to me the most important thing is, you know, is again to be authentic, is to 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 be who you are, to tell your story. You know, and I think there's also you know limits to what you want to share online. You know, I think there's there's a level of what's appropriate, and I think that level is different for everybody. I mean, everyone's line is different, though. That being said, you know what? You might be in the in the bathing suit business, and a selfie of you in a bikini is massively additive to your sales. So it's really it's really your own personal litmus test. Many creative entrepreneurs, women in particular, have a hard time staying true to their vision and saying no. You talked about how you know your growth is from the gut. So can you talk about are you comfortable using the word no, and can you think of a time when saying no was really key to the preservation of your vision and the success of your business? I mean, okay. I, I, in the beginning, when you're when you're starting out your your business, and it's like, you know, a tiny company, you can't say no to anybody because if it's revenue coming in, it depends on how you're financing it. If you've if you've been you know smart enough to write a business plan, get angel investors, you know, stay laser focused, you'll probably get to where I got much more quickly than I did. I did it where you know I didn't say no to anything. I took in every side job to make money 
to, to, to grow the business because I, A, didn't know that you could raise money, and B, at that time, you know, you know, private equity wasn't a word that was thrown about like, you know, like it is today. I mean, today, you know, everybody feels like there's an investor out there for them, and there may or may not be. But um, I would say that the businesses that scale the, sort of the, the most quickly and the most directly are ones that raise money, stay true to the vision, and get there. But if you want to grow it organically, say yes until you feel like you are you're making a compromise where your business isn't growing the way it should because you're doing all kinds of other things. Does that make sense? Like there's a, there's yes. a fine balance. Yeah, I mean, you, yes, exactly. Like, and I think you have to know it's this no thing, you know, but is there an example? Can you give an example? When you oh, yeah, no? absolutely. I mean, sometimes yes. no is the, is the biggest yes. So I, I said, you know what, I think it, it happened just post our relationship with Target. I think we had the opportunity to do a lot more with Target, but then we realized that, you know, the whole Internet e-commerce was just starting to boom. And so for us to keep going with that relationship, we would have lost out on SEO, PPC, and all kinds of things. And I think most people would say, well, how, you know, why – why wouldn't you keep that going? And, you know, we did in a private label way, but for us in terms of brand growth, it, made, it really made sense for us to say no to, to any kind of private label at that point because it was just distracting us from, you know, we were using our internal design focuses, focuses and resources to grow, to make other people's product. And so it was really scary because all of that is guaranteed income. So the day you pull the plug on that, you know, you've got to, you're A, going to set yourself back in terms of revenue that's coming in, but for us, it was, you know, it was, it was definitely the right thing to do in terms of brand growth. Let's talk about the book. Why did the, you decide to write it? You know what? I think I, 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 first of all, I wanted to do it because I felt like I needed to celebrate personal design. I also needed to, to celebrate all of these amazing people out there who have, you know, put themselves out into the world online to show their, you know, uniquely personal spaces and, I, I mean, I still believe, and I, you know, I, I, it still holds true today. I think some of the most interesting ideas in design are coming from all of these sort of quote-unquote non-professional people who are just redoing their places constantly. Their interior spaces are constantly evolving. It's very personal. It's you know curated, considered, but you know none of them are none of them are necessarily design professionals. Not to say that you know you, you can't be a design professional and do it, but to me also. It was. It's about. It's about how does interior design has evolved. Has evolved. So I think nowadays, you know, it used to be that you hired a decorator, they did your house, it was done, and that was it. And now I'm saying undecorating is because people are constantly changing their interiors. You know, whether it's a pillow or paint or moving furniture around, and then they're communicating it via social media. So there's all these amazing ideas and these ever transforming spaces. So I think it's a really important cultural shift, and I I wanted to document it. Part of the reason I wanted to revisit that interview is because so much of what Christiane was saying is really present for us now. This year, in particular, the push to digital in all aspects of our business that some have not previously considered has been huge. The ability to stay nimble is imperative. And the good news is that unlike so many other personality types, creatives are adaptable. A lot of my clients have gotten ideas that have had nothing to do with business as usual. And working together, we've been creating business and visibility strategies that purposely ignore the rules of supposed to, and this is how you do it, with totally unexpected 
and positive results. I see some marketers and business people calling this moment a recession, but that's not the season many of the creative women leaders I know are in. In fact, many of us are in a season of reinvention, of momentum, but not from hustle and push, the masculine way to do things, from flow, from stepping into the current of what is unfolding with this underlying urgency that the time, our time is now. I want to leave you with this. If there is an idea that keeps nudging you and your gut is telling you, you've got to do something with this, even though you don't know why or how, which is usually what is most paralyzing for people, and you're procrastinating or you've told someone and they've taken the wind out of your sails, but you know somewhere deep down that you cannot let this thing go because it just keeps coming out. It just keeps coming out because the time is now. The idea is of the moment, otherwise you wouldn't have it. So just take one baby step, one in the direction of its folding, and I guarantee you, you will be so excited and maybe terrified, but you know, excitement and terrified come in on the same channel, that will be impossible not to keep going. So whether it's for a product or a service or a cultural shift, we have all of the answers when we ask the right questions. This is your moment, our moment. Trust your gut. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at Voice Lessons Podcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at VoiceLessonsPodcast.com. Voice